Hello. Can you all see me and hear me? Very important. Super. And I get a giant picture of me to talk to. So it's like I'm preaching to myself. Um, and I do need to hear this talk. So it's only appropriate. Um, can I change that to gallery? Yeah. Okay. Um, you cannot move. Okay. Brilliant. Father God, I pray you'd be with me. I pray you'd uh, give me the right words to say, um, even despite all the preparation and uh, hopes I have for this talk. Lord, would you have your way? Would you be glorified? Um, and would we be built up as a church? In Jesus' name, amen. I love the disciples and I love reading about the disciples in uh, the Gospels because they paint for us such a picture of uh, our own failings and my own failings. So when I read stories about Peter who, you know, would say, Jesus, oh, you're the Messiah, and then say, but don't go to the cross, and Jesus rebukes him as Satan. It's just like, man, that's a, that's an uncomfortable story. Or, or Peter is a great example because he, he throws himself in with Jesus all in, and then he makes the biggest blunders. So he's obviously the disciple who denies Jesus three times. Um, he's also the disciple who is the first on the water and walks on the sea. Uh, he's the disciple who, after spending a whole night fishing, uh, and Jesus says, cast your net on the other side, says, uh, we've been at this all night, but because you say so, I will. And so the disciples paint for us a wonderful learning experience because we can look at them and see ourselves um, with all of our weaknesses, our insecurities, our doubts, our failings, um, and we can see that Jesus responds grace gracefully to them, and we can know that he responds gracefully to us. Um, so with that in mind, we're going to go to another pair of disciples who also have put their foot in it. Um, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, they came to Jesus, and they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Um, which is a fantastic way to start a prayer, isn't it? God, I just have one small request. Please, can you do whatever you want, whatever I want for me? Uh, uh, yeah, it's just a, a great way to respond to, uh, to start a prayer is, God, do everything my way, please. Uh, and Jesus's response is graceful. And he doesn't say, look, I'm the son of God. You don't ask me like that. He says, no, what do you want me to do for you? He could have said, be a bit more humble in your prayers. Approach me with a little bit of uh, uh, not big headedness and, and, and come to me humbly. But instead he says, okay, you've asked me this. What do you want me to do for you? And so this talk, I'm going to look, divide it into three sections. We've got the request of James and John. We've got the response of Jesus and then we've got the reality that we have to take into account now as his disciples in the 21st century as Western Christians. So the request, um, can one of us sit at your left and one at your right when you come in glory? I don't know if you've seen the film Rocky. Meyer and I love the film Rocky. It's a boxing film. And at the end of the film, he defeats his opponent 
and he puts his arms up in the air. I've won, I've won, this is great. And the crowds flood to him. They want to be next to him. They want to be, because this is his moment of glory. This is the moment he's just become champion of the world. They're all running towards him and everyone wants to be in on that moment. And it's very similar to the disciples' request. When you are in glory, can we be next to you? It's a bit like Boris Johnson winning the election and choosing who's going to be at my right and left. Is it going to be Rishi Sunak, Dominic Cummings? Who's going to be at my left and right when I'm elected prime minister? Um, It's a very similar request to the argument they had a couple of chapters ago in chapter nine, where it says they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And we go into it, but but one of the, the verses says, but they kept quiet because on the road, they had argued about who was the greatest. It's a very similar request. Can we sit at your left and right when you come in glory? Can we be the greatest? Which of us is, is going to win the tussle for that? Um, and as I reflect about this verse, I, I see it similar to what's going on in my heart. Um, I might not outwardly admit, God, I want to be the greatest. I want to have you know this position in life. Um, but if I'm honest with myself before God, I know that there is a desire in me for glory, a desire for greatness, a desire for a reputation. Um, and it's a dark part of me, but it's something we wrestle with. Um, one author calls it the elephant in the brain. I don't know if you've heard the expression, the elephant in the room. It's the thing that's there that no one's talking about. Um, we, It's an awkward conversation to have, but the elephant in the brain is this concept that there's a, uh, an inner desire for us that we're not proud about, but a lot of our actions seem to align with this inner motive for greatness, for reputation, for esteem, for recognition, for a, a status or a position. Um, and sometimes we pull our religion into that. We say, Jesus, make me great. Jesus, lift me up. Um, obviously, we don't pray that boldly about that, um, but we, we might internally want it. Um, so yeah, in, in our clothing choices, in our possessions, in our achievements, our job titles, these can all serve as status symbols um, that, that just speak for us subconsciously, subtly, because if we do it overtly, you know, people think we're big-headed and egotistical, but subtly we're vying for this position. Um, so I may not be as bold as the disciples to ask Jesus to make me great, to lift me up and to give me status and recognition. I sure as anything want it. And I don't know if any of you can relate or if it's just me and my sinful complexities, um, but it's there and I'm sure some of us can relate. So how does Jesus respond? Uh, how does Jesus respond gracefully uh, to this request? Because Jesus could go, guys, this is ridiculous. I am the son of God you know, you're just a human being. You should not be asking me questions like this. Um, Get down on your knees and worship me. But instead, Jesus responds gracefully. He could chastise them for their desire to be great. He could ridicule them for their massive egos. He could tell them that they need to be less proud and more humble. But instead, Jesus responds graciously and patiently. And his response is off-balancing. It is so off-balancing that for us as British people, especially, uh, we might actually miss it. 
And so his response is kind of in two parts and the, the two parts I want to explore and then we'll go to the re reality of how this affects our day-to-day -day life. But, but the first off-balancing thing about his response is that Jesus doesn't chastise them for wanting to be great. Um, and this sits very uncomfortably with me as a British person who's polite and, you know, we wouldn't want to promote ourselves or make out that, you know, we're important people. But actually, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, if you want to be great, um, whoever wants to become great must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. So somewhere in this, he's saying, look, your desire to be great isn't wrong. It's just misguided. Um, so there are some other verses throughout the Bible that talk about human beings and Christians as great people. And I think why Jesus doesn't pick up on this is because there's a part of us as human beings and as Christians who need to step into this, this call of greatness. So when human beings are first made, it said that they were made in the image of God with authority and dominion over all of creation. There's a wonderful uh, passage in Psalm 8, which I'm just going to read. Um, it says, when I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels. And this is it. And you have crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. I think one of the reasons Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, look, your pursuit for greatness is out of order. You shouldn't be thinking about this thing. You shouldn't be thinking about coming first. You shouldn't be thinking about being great or receiving glory. It's because there's an element in which as human beings, we need to step into this. We are great. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Um, another, uh, another wonderful passage that, that's given to Christians is in Revelation 8, uh, Revelation 3, it's to the lukewarm church. You know, if you re remember in Laodicea, there's a church that's lukewarm, and Jesus promises them, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And then Revelation 4 gives us an amazing picture of that throne. And so as human beings, we are called to greatness. As Christians, we are called to greatness. Um, there's a, a beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis, um, which, which talks about our desire being too weak and not too strong. And I think it applies to this as well. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the sand because he cannot imagine what is on offer by a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And what I think the first thing Jesus is saying to us is that his response is saying, look, your desire for greatness is too weak. You're pursuing a desire for greatness that's like the Gentiles, like the rulers of this age, where they lord it over people, they abuse people, they take other people advantage, they put other people down. And, and, and what I'm saying is greatness is found in service and servanthood. I think it's very important for us as Christians, especially British Christians, that we don't think of ourselves as worthless and rubbish. 
Um, a lot of people think it's a very holy and spiritual thing to have this false humility that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthwhile. I'm not great. And actually, the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus is, no, you are great. You are dearly loved. He is especially fond of us. Um, one of my favorite verses in Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord takes great delight in you. And I think it's important not to pass over that in Jesus's response. He's not saying, don't pursue greatness. Don't pursue this. He's just saying, be careful how you pursue this, because we don't want to be doing it wrong. Um, and, it, and there is a big but coming up. There is a, a big change of direction, because whilst we um, need to have our identity secure in, in who we are called to be and made to be, uh, and the glory and the greatness that will be revealed in us as his followers. The route to greatness is not what we might assume. And this is the second off-balancing kind of part of Jesus's response. Jesus responds and paints for us a vision of the reality of greatness. How do we get there? So if I go back to Mark, it says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. We, we heard last week and Katrina brought it up again in her poem about these power pyramids the we have one person on the top who has all this authority and in this passage Jesus is just exploding it again just like Tom said he's taking a, a part of our vision and our current perspective of what it means to be great and he's dismantling it he turns upside down what it truly means to exercise authority what it means to pursue glory and honor and what it means to appear great before other people And this is a vision that we desperately need to hear. And I think as much as the, the vision of greatness and worth that you have, because God calls you valuable, we need to hear that the, the reality of greatness in God's kingdom is servanthood. We need to receive this as individuals, as family members. Are we serving each other in our families? Are we serving our spouse? Are we serving our children or our parents or our brothers or uncles or sisters are we serving our grandparents you know i think that covid's been wonderful opportunity that, that young people have have been serving the elders by bringing medicines and shopping and i think st christopher's has been a great picture of that the vision of servanthood is what we need to receive as colleagues and as bosses, as interns and as students, as friends on the playgrounds, we need to receive this vision of servanthood. Wherever you are in life, whatever your career or your station or your gender or your race or your denomination or your gifting in this body of believers, it is to serve. And this is a counter-cultural idea. not the same as with the, the the gentiles with those who don't know jesus who don't follow him 
this is countercultural. So a question uh, to ground this all in reality is who are you serving at the moment? Who in your family are you serving? Who in your neighborhood are you serving? Who in your workplace and in your church are you serving? And an even more cutting question. Uh, my translation of the NIV says, um, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Are you a slave to all or just those you respect and admire? Are we a slave to those only who have authority over us? Or are we a slave to our children in love? Do we pass ourselves in a position of servanthood? This is countercultural. This is off balancing. And this is a vision we need to receive uh, in, in all those ways. But importantly, as Christians seeking to share the gospel of Christ, this is a vision we need to receive as witnesses. Um, I've been struck over the last few months how often I hear talk about the uh, right to freedom of speech or right to say what I want or right to proclaim what, what I do. And I think Jesus might be urging us in a different way to give up our right to, to free speech and maybe to earn the right to speak freely, to earn the right to declare Jesus's love by our servanthood. I love the passage that we had uh, read out for us in Corinthians. Like, even though I'm a free and I'm a slave to no one, I have made myself a slave to all in order that I might win some for the gospel. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the, to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. To the weak, I became weak. I have become all things to all people so that I might save some. I think this might be a pathway to influencing the world towards Jesus, a pathway of servanthood. So going back to the passage, one more thing I, I want to point out is, um, is going back to the request of James and John. James and John said to him, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Uh, there is a great irony in their request. Um, if we think maybe collectively, if we think now, when was Jesus's moment of glory? When does Jesus most show forth the glory of God's justice? When does Jesus reveal most powerfully the glory of God's love? The glory of God's kingdom. When is that? It's at the cross. At the cross, we, we, we praise God over and over again because he it, it, it went to the cross and died for us. He became a servant to us all. Philippians 2 has this amazing passage which uh, he became obedient to us to, to death, even to death. And therefore God raised him up. There is a time when Jesus will come back and, and establish his kingdom on earth. And that's a time we can look forward to. But there is also a time of intense glory at the cross where Jesus became a servant and a slave to the whole world. I wonder if this is why Jesus said, 
you have no idea what you are asking. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink of? You know, the cup that Jesus said, Lord, take this cup away from me. But if it's not your will, it's not, it's not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup. Maybe it's the same cup of the cross, the cup of God's wrath, the cup where Jesus drank and became a servant to all. Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet. He serves us now, it says, by constantly interceding for us. I don't know if you've ever tried to pray for someone for every day for a week, but it's hard to remember. Even, even remember it's hard to pray for someone consistently for a week. But it says Jesus prays for us and he intercedes for us. He is serving us. He served us by giving up his rights and precious privileges to die for us. I want to finish with one more quote uh, from a, a man called Tim Keller, uh, who has written a wonderful book on the Gospel of Mark. And talking about this passage, he says, if at the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you are going to influence, win influence in society is through service rather than power and control. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God, I pray that uh, as we as we go from here on Sunday, that um, we would go into our workplaces, into our families, into the relationships that that we have, even few that they may be as servants, um, confident in the greatness and glory that you've embedded into our being from creation, yet willing to serve to make your name great. In Jesus' name, amen.